Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Signs. This series looks at the seven signs found in the Gospel of John, symbolic events that call us to embrace Jesus as the Lord who has come to redeem his people. I'm going to be reading John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, as we move on to the fourth of the seven signs in John's Gospel. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. I'm going to be again using the New International Version this morning. I'll actually make a little bit of a comment about something uh, that if you're following along in the King James, you may wonder about, and, and we're going to have an after-hours video about. So John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of our sovereign Lord. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When I was a teenager, uh, the movie Star Wars came out. And it was a big deal. I mean, everybody went to see Star Wars. I was about the only person who did not go to see Star Wars somehow. I didn't see it until Empire Strikes Back. But it was a huge issue. And I remember being in the theater when we were watching Empire Strikes Back. And you're going along, and of course, the villain who was the greatest villain that anybody had ever seen, Darth Vader, was hated for many, many reasons for all the cruel things he did, but especially because he had killed Luke's father. Luke Skywalker, the hero. And then in the middle of the movie, there was this massive plot twist, and everything 
everybody had thought they had known about Star Wars got turned on its head when Luke was screaming to Darth Vader, you killed my father, and then suddenly Darth utters the words, no, I am your father, which all the way down till today, you can look up on YouTube or whatever, and you can see all kinds of parents and grandparents having the joy of showing this movie to the kids, and then the kids all having the same universal reaction of shock. And what did he say? He's his father? And everybody's just because suddenly it's not just that moment, but everything that's happened before you start trying to redo in your mind and figure out what in the world's going on. What I thought had happened is not what had happened. And that's part of what makes a great movie. There's many, many different movies you could pick out that are this way. Sixth Sense was that way. There's a lot of them where we love when there's a plot twist. Now, why I bring this up is John's going through and he's giving all these signs. But in this sign, one thing that stands out is there is a huge plot twist right in the middle. So that everything we thought we were tracking with and everything we thought the sign was about we suddenly discover we've kind of heard, no, I am your father. There is this big shift in the story, and everything from that point changes, and we're trying to also pick up with what had gone on before. So what is the sign, and what is the reality to which it points, which is tied up with what this plot twist is? So let's jump into the sign, which is fairly straightforward. It is Jesus healing this paralytic. Now notice we're told in the first couple of verses that Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is where Jesus had actually done the second sign, the cleansing of the temple. And it stands out a little bit because in the other signs we've seen, when Jesus turned the water to wine, nobody got upset. When Jesus healed the royal official's son, nobody gets upset, even though Jesus has some harsh, stinging words of rebuke. There's no record that anybody's upset about it. But in Jerusalem... When he had cleansed the temple, remember, he was challenged. Who, who gave you authority to do this? Why, why do you think you can do this? And so now the plot's thickening a bit because Jesus is back out of Cana into Jerusalem where there has been some trouble before. And interestingly enough, John tells us he's gone up to Jerusalem for a festival. And for the only time in the Gospel of John, he doesn't tell us what festival it is. He usually tells us it's Passover or or which festival it is that Jesus goes up for. But in this case, he doesn't tell us what the festival is. And the reason is because it doesn't matter. The festival's not part of the sign, which is unusual. And the festival has nothing to do with what's going on in the story. So John just kind of leaves it off to the side. He's kind of tipping his hand. There's going to be a twist coming up. But he tells us Jesus gets up to Jerusalem. And we might expect that he's gone to the temple, but he doesn't. What he actually does is he goes down to this pool that is near the temple. And John gives all this interesting detail. He says there's a pool in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, or it might say a pool related to the sheep. We're not sure. The, the Greek's a little ambiguous, and it may be that they washed the sheep that are used for sacrifice there. But he tells us that there's this pool down in this area related to the sheep, and that there's actually five porches around it or colonnades around it, which might strike as a little unusual because when you think of a pool, how many things, if we surrounded a pool with colonnades, how many would normally be there? 
that would normally be four, unless you've got some really odd-shaped pool that there's going to be five of them. But what's interesting is they've actually uncovered this pool. We now have seen the pool. It's under a place called St. Anne's Monastery in Jerusalem. And the reason that there's five porticos or five colonnades is because it's actually two pools split in half. So up here you can see a model of what it looks like when they dug up. This is what he's talking about. This is a massive pool. This place is huge. And all of those covered areas, John tells us, are actually surrounded, uh, surrounding the pool, and they actually are full of sick people who are uh, lying down. One thing I'm just going to say in passing is it's really interesting. Some scholars want to say John was written way, way, way later. What's interesting is this place got destroyed in 70 A.D., along with everything else. But John, just in passing, gives little details that we don't uncover with archaeology until a long time later, uncovering that actually, no, the guy who's talking about it has intimate knowledge of what Jerusalem and Galilee were like prior to times of destruction and the Roman army coming through. Just a little sideline that scholars are oftentimes proven wrong uh, in when they date these things and, uh, and the level of knowledge that John's got. So anyway, there's these colonnades. Picture this here, and it's full of people who are sick. They've got all kinds of a variety of sicknesses, and they're probably there waiting for alms for help. But there's also a popular belief that somehow these waters can provide healing. In verse 7, the man references this a little bit. And if you've got older translations, if you've got the King James Bible or the New King James Bible, you may notice that there's a verse 4. There's some words at the end of verse 3, and there's some words in verse 4 about an angel coming down and stirring the waters. And no modern translations have those words. I'm not going to delve into why that is today. If you are interested in why modern translations don't have those, on uh, After Hours this week, we're going to do a little video, and I'll describe to you how they go about determining what's the most original text, what John originally wrote, and all of that, and you can kind of dive into it. But it's kind of beside the point this morning. There's all these sick people there. That's what's important. They're lying around, and they kind of expect that every once in a while somebody can get in the water and they can get healed. And so John tells us that there's one particular man there. And notice this one man, we're told in verse 5, has been invalid for 38 years. Now, he's been there for 38 years. The interesting thing is the average lifespan in Israel at the time of Jesus is barely over 40 years. So this guy has literally been invalid for most of his life, or he may have lived a little bit longer than a, than a typical lifespan, but he's been invalid for basically his lifetime. And the point behind all of this is it's hopeless. There's, there's nothing that can be done for this guy. He's been there at these waters, and there's been no relief for his sickness. And so Jesus walks up to him, and Jesus says, do you want to get well? Jesus takes the initiative. The guy doesn't ask Jesus for anything. He's, as we're going to see in a moment, unaware apparently of who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, do you want to get well? Would you like your whole life to change starting today? You've been here for 38 years. Would you like a new start? Is what, in essence, Jesus is telling the man. And this is kind of interesting because notice in this sign, this is unlike 
turning the water to wine, or healing the royal official's son. The two signs up in Cana, you remember Jesus is just standing around and Mary comes in and says, uh, they've run out of wine. Kind of, what are you going to do about that, Jesus? And you remember the royal official. He shows up and tells Jesus, my son is sick and I need you to come heal him. In both of those cases, people came to Jesus. But when Jesus is in Jerusalem so far, nobody asks him to clean out the temple. He just does. And here, the man doesn't say anything to Jesus. He gives no indication he knows who he is. Jesus just walks up and says, hmm, you've been laying here for 38 years. Would you like to get well? Would you like to be healed? He is taking the initiative. And so Jesus is doing this. Now, the interesting thing is, notice how the guy responds. If you're someone who's read the Gospel of John, and in the very previous story, Jesus, you remember, doesn't even have to go down to Capernaum to heal. A young man on the verge of death, Jesus says, go. He's healed. And, and he heals from 15 miles away. Knowing what we know, we know that Jesus has turned water to wine. We realize and know, well, Jesus can heal you. So what would we expect the man to say back? Yes, Lord, would you please heal me? But notice what the guy says. Sir, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. This guy apparently has no clue who Jesus is. Other people know Jesus has done miracles. He either has not heard of that, or remember, there's no TV screens back then. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's just some guy asking a question, and the guy's answer is almost a little bit you know, irritated back, like, look, I, yeah, of course I'd like to get healed, but the problem is I'm an invalid. I can't get down to the water because I don't have anybody who will help me get in the water when it gets stirred, and so, of course, it doesn't work for me. So he's showing no knowledge of who Jesus is, and he's showing no faith that Jesus can heal him. Notice he doesn't even at the end of that say, but is there something you can do to heal me? There is no sign of faith from this man. Again, the opposite of the royal official. This guy in chapter 5 is the opposite of the royal official and also of the blind man we're going to see in John chapter 9. Virtually every way they are, showing faith, siding with Jesus, working against authorities, all of that, this man is none of that. He shows no evidence of faith in Jesus. All he's saying in essence is, well, yeah, I guess so, and if the water gets stirred, maybe you can drag me down into the water and I can get healed. But notice Jesus' response, he kind of just brushes past that, and we get to the actual sign. And the sign is, Jesus simply speaks his powerful word. In Greek, it's one word, arise, get up. The guy's been laying there for 38 years, and suddenly he tells the lame man, get up and walk, and the lame man walks. Now notice, John, this is just a little freebie on the side. Think of how often we've dealt with water so far in this gospel. At a wedding, there's six jars full of water, and how much help are they for the problem? Nothing. But Jesus turns the water into wine. If you go into John chapter 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and says, it's not enough to be born of water. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. 
John chapter 4, Jesus goes down to Samaria and he speaks to the woman at the well. And she's sitting there and she says, I got nobody to help me draw the water and it's deep and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus looks at her and says, yeah, here's your problem. If you drink of this well, you're going to get thirsty again. But you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst. Now we come to John chapter 5. There's a guy been laying for how long at the water? 38 years. And how much better is he? None. It's done nothing. 38 years of laying there, putting his hope that this water is somehow going to heal him. And in one word, one word, Jesus says, get up. And it's over, or or arise, if you want to keep it as one word in English. Arise, and you are healed. Now, this is a sign that he's the Messiah. If you pay attention and you know your scripture, one of the signs of Messiah is that he would heal the lame. It comes out of a text like Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, is where they drew it. But it was part of the popular messianic expectation. So much so, we read in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, you know, who had shown great faith that Jesus was the Messiah. But when John gets in jail, and then he's been expecting Jesus to do certain things, and Jesus hasn't done them. And those things include, John seems to think Jesus is going to drive out the Romans and do some things. John sends word to Jesus uh, in Matthew eleven two, and says, he sent the disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And notice how Jesus replies. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, why does Jesus say this? It's not just a random list. All of these were expectations of the Messiah. So Jesus is telling John, look, I know things aren't unfolding quite the way you thought they were going to unfold, but you all go back and tell him what you've been observing while you're doing this. All of these things are happening, and one of them is the lame are healed. And we know that there are multiple times Jesus actually does that, and that includes here in John's Gospel. We're also going to see in John chapter 9, the blind receiving sight. So all of these are the expectations that uh, the Messiah was going to do. They're part of the Messianic age. And so Jesus' healing of the man who's been able to walk for 38 years, This isn't something he fell down last week and things seem to be messed up a little bit. 38 years this man has been waiting. 38 years he's laid by the pool. 38 years apparently other people have received healings at least for some period of time and nothing has happened for him. And in one word that takes a second for Jesus to state, the man's healed. Get get up. I tell you to get up up and you are healed. Now, at this point, we think we understand the story. At this point, we, we, we got it. Darth Vader's the bad guy. He killed Luke's dad. And we understand what's going on in the story. And that's what we think here. Jesus is the Messiah. He's done a healing. It's a healing of a lame man. It's showing surely people are going to get it. And then John does a plot twist. And everything shifts. In fact, it's really funny when they numbered the verses, because remember, John didn't write verses in. When, when a monk numbered the verses in the Middle Ages, this plot twist is the second half of the same verse. It's the second half, uh, actually, of verse 9, where it says, the man was cured, he picked up his mat, and he walked. But notice, here's the plot twist. 
the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Now, why I say it's a plot twist, you might at first read that and roll right by it. The rest of the story is virtually nothing about the healing and everything about the Sabbath. Why is that? What's going on here? What is John wanting us to get? Because the whole story uh, turns, and it's no longer Jesus healed, which is what we would be putting our focus on. Everything from this point forward is the Sabbath, and actually it runs through a couple of chapters of arguing with Jesus. They keep coming back to this every time he's in Jerusalem. Now the reason for this is, for the Jews, nothing, virtually nothing was more central than the Sabbath. And they have all of these laws, and their objection is it's against the Old Testament law. So notice, this is kind of unusual, because if these people are familiar with this man, if they've seen him around this pool for 38 years, and he's picking up his mat and he's walking, what would be your first question? Uh, walking? This has either been a really long ruse, like 38 years worth, or what in the world happened? And so we would expect him to say that, but they don't say that. They say, it's the Sabbath, the laws against carrying your mat. Now, maybe we would say they didn't know that he was an invalid. Maybe they had not been down there and seen him. Maybe these guys don't go down to the, the pool by the sheep gate, and so they've never seen him before. But then he turns around in the very next verse, and he says, but look, the guy who healed me. I, I was lame. This guy healed me, but he told me to pick up my mat and walk. What would be the logical question? Healed you? Well, what was wrong with you? What went on? You were lame for 38 years and this guy healed you? But do you notice, is there any of that in the text? Do they seem interested at all in the text? In fact, notice the, the uh, question they asked back in verse 12. He says, the man who made me well. They replied back, who's the one who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Their whole focus is on how he broke the Sabbath law. And this is because they're so concerned about the law. Now, what I'm going to put up here is I want you to see why they are. I'm going to give you every verse in the Old Testament that tells you you can't carry things on the Sabbath. So ready? Here they go. Beth? Oh, that is every verse in the Old Testament that tells you you can't carry everything on the Sabbath. It's a blank screen. But their whole concern, 38 years, he's laid there an invalid. 38 years, he can't move. 38 years, and Jesus says, get up and walk, and their only question is, whoa, 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 whoa. You told him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. Now, to be fair to them, they had said, well, it says you can't work on the Sabbath, and we can't just leave it with God said you can't work. We broke work down into 39 different ways you can't work. And no, I'm not making that number up. That's not just a random number Brett picked up. They had 39 ways to define work. And the 39th one was you cannot pick one thing up and carry it from one place to another. So I could pick up like this bottle of water, and I could carry it around as long as I stayed in my house or as long as I was here in our church building. But if I pick this up and I carry it out of here and I carry it down the road, I've now done work, 
and I have violated the Sabbath. And they were quite, quite clear. Oddly enough, for, for a little weird thing, on another Sabbath, Jesus heals a guy who's brought in on a mat and four friends are carrying him. You can carry a bed as long as somebody else is on it on the Sabbath, but you can't carry your own bed on the Sabbath. They've got this stuff down. They've worked it out, and Jesus has violated this. Now, why I point this out is to us who are here a couple thousand years later, you might read this story and think Jesus is picking a fight. And that's only because Jesus is picking a fight. That's why it seems like that's what he's doing. He's going out of his way. Now, why do I say this? Let me ask you a question. Why heal the guy that day? It's been 38 years. You're in Jerusalem. You could have healed him the day before. Or you could heal him the day after. But Jesus doesn't. He does it on the Sabbath. You also could heal the man on the Sabbath and tell him, get up, walk home. Leave your mat here because it's against the law. Leave the mat here. I don't think you care that much about it. I mean, like you're walking again after 38 years. I'll make sure the bed's taken care of. But he doesn't. He specifically tells the man, get up and pick up your bed, and I want you to carry your bed, and I want you to walk home with it. Not only that, Notice in the text, when the man, if you look at verses 9 to 13, when the guy says, the guy who healed me said, you know, pick up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? We do learn a little bit more about the guy. What's his answer? One would think, if you've been laying there for 38 years, and somebody heals you, what might be the first question in your mouth? Who are you? Not this guy. He doesn't seem to notice anything about it. He's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was just laying there. Guy spoke a word and I'm healed and didn't occur to me to ask him who he was or how he could speak a word and I'm healed after 38 years. I, I didn't get that. I didn't get his name. And now that I'm looking around, he doesn't seem to be here. Now the story could have ended there. If Jesus didn't want to pick a fight, the story could end ended there. But notice what we read in verse, uh, verses 13 to 15, uh, starting in verse 14. Later, Jesus finds him at the temple. Jesus goes out of his way, and he seeks the guy out, and he finds him at the temple, and he says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, I heard one or two people kind of react when I read that. I'm not going to have time to go into that this morning either, but if you go back to office hours, we will, I mean, after hours, I'll talk a little bit about the relationship between sin and is Jesus saying this man's sin caused him to be sick and what is relationship. It's another juxtaposition with John chapter 9, I'll tell you that. Because you remember the blind man, the disciples said, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, oh, good grief. No, neither one of them sinned. That's not what's going on here. But here, Jesus tells the guy, you need to stop sinning or something even worse. I mean, and if it's worse than 38 years of not walking, this is something that will definitely mess up your day. And Jesus tells him something worse could happen, which I really think is you need to respond to who I am or else there's something far worse than not walking for 38 years and it's being under the wrath of God. But in any event, Jesus tells him, 
hey, here I am. I did this. And then notice what the man does. I love one of the commentators said, this guy is not the stuff of which heroes are made. If somebody had healed you after 38 years and the authorities are upset with the person and you are at all grateful for the guy healing you, would your first reaction be to beat your path back to the authorities and say, I found him, you guys can go get him now? I mean, the guy in John 9 argues and defends Jesus. And does all this. this guy just keeps throwing Jesus under the bus. It's kind of what it looks like. I mean, this guy is, he's not the stuff of which heroes are made, let's just say. There's nothing in this story where he displays any faith, any sense of understanding. So he goes back and he tells him, yeah, it was Jesus. He's the one who broke the Sabbath law by telling me to carry my mat. Now, this gets us, when we see this, we're going to see that I'm not just making this up. We're going to see the interaction that leads, and we don't even have time to go through all the rest of chapter 5 where there's this long-running argument. But here's what John wants us to know. The sign was healing the paralytic, and he did it on the Sabbath. The reality that it's pointing to is who Jesus is. And who he is is he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's the, he's the God who has given Sabbath, not just some yokel who has to obey the Sabbath. Now, why do I say that? Notice in verses 16 to 18, these are the very next verses, we're given two issues that turn into this long-running argument with Jesus, and we're going to see how serious this is. Notice in verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And then in verse 18 we read, for this reason they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and then it goes on. So notice here, this is not a minor thing to them. John says that they begin to persecute him. And that's identified in verse 18 as they decide they want to kill him. They're taking this very seriously. You remember I said at the first sign when Mary said, Jesus, the wine, and Jesus said, you know, Mary, you, you don't kind of understand. When, when I do this, we start the clock. Well, the clock is very clearly running because we're down in John chapter 5 now, and because Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath, they're persecuting him, and in fact, that persecution is the form they want to kill him. And this you can't fully see in English. The NIV's tried to capture it, but the the Greek tense is what's called the imperfect, and what it means here is it's not just that Jesus did something on the Sabbath once. They might have gotten upset about that, but Jesus has a habit of doing this kind of thing, okay? And if we read in the Gospels, he does. He is kind of, at one point, you know, they, they get upset because he heals somebody on the Sabbath, and people are like, hey, you, there's six days a week you can come here and get healed by this guy. Once again, a complete exercise in missing the point of what's going on. But Jesus is constantly going out of his way to do something on the Sabbath. And the phrase for they are persecuting him is the same thing. It's not just that there's one argument. It is an ongoing, settled opposition to Jesus. The lines are being drawn. He is doing things that are making a claim, and they are responding to those things he's doing and to that claim and they're set against one another. And this is not just in John's gospel. Interestingly enough, in all four gospels, Jesus' behavior on the Sabbath creates such conflict and controversy that in every gospel, it is a major reason they want to kill him. 
Because this, this may sound silly to us. You may laugh about this today, not silly to them. Everything is wrapped up in this, and they believe Jesus is doing something wrong, and they ultimately want him put to death. And in fact, John hints at this a little bit in verse 18 where it says he's breaking the Sabbath. The, the, the word there is sometimes used to destroy something, is the word it means. It means to lose something, to, to completely break it down, and ultimately to destroy it. What these people are saying is the way this guy's behaving, the statements he's making, the things he's doing, if this goes on and we don't put a stop to this, it's not just that there'll be one guy walking around with the mat on the Sabbath day. He's going to completely destroy the system we have built up, which might be the point of what Jesus is actually trying to do. And so for the very first time in John's gospel, we hear in verse 18, they want to kill him but it will not be the last. But make no mistake, the clock is ticking. Everything is set in motion because as odd as it seems, they are rejecting the signs. Remember last week when we looked and Jesus is asked to heal the boy and he has that strange response, you people will not believe unless you see signs. And we're, we're wrestling through, why is Jesus having this strong reaction? Well, here we see part of it. When Jesus does a clear sign, 38 years, 38 years, and you want to see Messiah, I will bring the Messianic age here in a word. And they ignore it. They don't care. They're not interested in that. They are interested in their own rules and laws. Well, it gets even worse because Jesus gives an answer back to them, and that answer does not ease the tension. It ratchets it up a whole nother level. Notice what he says. Interestingly enough, in verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, we don't even have a word that they've said, but apparently in this persecution, John's capturing it, and Jesus gives a defense, and it's actually a legal term. That's why the NIV's translated it that way. This word is usually used in a court setting. And so Jesus is saying, okay, so I gave a messianic sign, and I, in doing it, I broke your Sabbath law, and so now you're putting me on trial, okay? I'm going to give my defense. You've thrown the pitch. I'm going to take a swing. And here's what my swing is. My father is always at his work to this very day. You say that there can't be this kind of work on the Sabbath. I say God always works even on the Sabbath. That's what I'm saying. Now, we're going to come back to the my father in a minute because, please note, as soon as he said that, they kind of shook their head. But they don't even get to respond before Jesus says, my father's always at work even on the Sabbath. Now, I want you to notice what he doesn't do. Jesus does not argue with them about their Sabbath laws. Interestingly enough, we might expect that. And on other occasions, he does. On other occasions, he says, you guys have missed the entire purpose of the Sabbath. You can look, for example, in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, and he says, you, you've got the Sabbath all backwards. But he does not do that here. Instead, he says, the Father always works, even on the Sabbath. And here's the funny thing. The Jews agree. Jesus is not the first person to say this. The Jews had gone through and argued because they had, all, I mean, when you've broken down work to 39 things on the Sabbath, you, you have to think about these things. And so the question had come up, 
Well, does God work on the Sabbath? And the obvious answer is he must work on the Sabbath. Because if God doesn't work, what would happen to the entire universe? It would cease to exist. The biblical doctrine is that God sustains us moment by moment by moment by his word. So God must be working on the Sabbath or else we would all cease to exist. So this was a well-known answer in Judaism. They believed it. And they said, well, you know, when you go back to Genesis 2, 4, and it says that God rested on the Sabbath after he had done the six days of creation, it can't mean that he completely ceased working in any sense because the universe wouldn't exist if he did that. And furthermore, they said, well, look, the wicked are called to judgment on the day of Sabbath, and the righteous are blessed on the day of Sabbath, and that only comes from God. So, so God must be also judging on the Sabbath. We won't even have time to go there today, but if you read further down in chapter 5, Jesus is going to say, yeah, really? Well, God's given me the authority to judge because I'm the one who does the judging and the blessing and the cursing, which is part of Jesus' identity. But all of that they've said God does on the Sabbath, and they would agree with Jesus on all of this. But their question back would be, I have a question, what does that have to do with you? God works. We all recognize that, but we don't work. But see, this is where Jesus' defense gets even worse. Because notice, he doesn't just say, my father's always at his work. Jesus says in verse 17, and I too am working. Now we have a real problem. We don't have a problem with you saying God works. We do have a problem, A, the my father bit. That's a little bit unusual. We don't normally talk that way. And then the I also am working. My father works. And so obviously I work too. Who do you think you are? Jesus is linking his work with the work of God. And since the father works on the Sabbath, no, I'm not waiting another day to heal this guy. No, I don't have to tell him, leave his mat, and I'll stay here and walk it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I heal when I want to heal. And I command and tell you what to do when I want to because my Father's work and my work are one. What the Father does, I do because I am one with my Father. Make no mistake, Jesus here is, you got to picture what these guys are doing. They're waiting to see some kind of a crazy explanation, and Jesus definitely ratchets it up. He says, oh, oh, you misunderstand. You are right. If I were just another person like you, I couldn't do this on the Sabbath, but I'm God. That's who I am. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one gave Sabbath. And so I've always been doing my work. It's my word created, it's my word sustains, and it's my word healed that man on the Sabbath. Jesus is making a clear claim to deity. And make no mistake here, see, people today and only scholars who get all kinds of degrees could miss this. They come up with this stuff and they try and find some other thing that Jesus is saying, but notice the Jews had no problem understanding what he's saying. In verse 18, he tells us, not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And they say, well, that's a misunderstanding. Really? We'll keep reading Jesus' words in John chapter 5, where he says, 
You know, you say that the Father can judge on the Sabbath. Well, the Father's given all judgment to me. You say the Father has the power to have life, and he has life in himself. I have life in myself. You say the Father can give life on the Sabbath. I give life. You say the Father could bring the resurrection about and start the eternal Sabbath. It is my voice that will speak, and everyone will come out of the grave. If Jesus is trying to clear up their misconception that he's claiming to be God, he's the dumbest dude who has ever walked on the planet. Because every word out of his mouth only makes it worse. Unless what he's actually doing is saying, yeah, you're right, and I'm going to keep upping the ante. I want you to know, everything you believe about who God is, I claim. All of it is who I am. And so, this cements their sustained desire to oppose and ultimately kill Jesus because he's claiming to be God. And so this sign, this is why there's the plot twist. The reason Jesus does all this is he's not just trying to get them upset about him doing healings. They wouldn't have had a problem with that. But what he is saying is, is it's about much more than a healing. It's about you coming to grips with the reality of who I am. And here is who I am. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm not just a human being, and therefore I am not under Sabbath laws. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the eternal creator who gave Sabbath to you. I am the sustainer. I am the redeemer. I am God. Now, this, of course, if you've read the gospel, lines up with what John told us. Remember, every sign goes back to the prologue. Well, how did this gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So notice the whole Sabbath thing goes back to the creation story, and John begins by going back to the creation story and telling us this is the identity of the one that we're going to be reading about. The signs you're going to read about are being done by the one who created in the first place. He's the one who called everything to be. And so right here, actually, in the first verse, we see the doctrine of the Trinity. He's with God. He was God. Uh, and he and the Father are described as working together throughout chapter 5. Jesus says, I, I only do what I see the Father doing. So in essence, his thing is, is I and the Father are one, so the Father was healing this guy. So I spoke the word, and I healed him. And that is my defense because I and the Father are one and whatever the Father does, I do because I am the eternal Son of God. And so Jesus is here making this claim. And so in essence, what he's saying is, you misunderstand, it's impossible for me to break the Sabbath. I can't break the Sabbath because I'm the God of the Sabbath. And so it's something I give to you, not something to which I submit. Now, how do we then apply this? What does this mean? John's taking this turn, and the sign ultimately points to Jesus' identity, which is what is central, and we're going to see this in every single sign he is calling them to wrestle with. There's two questions for you and me. Number one, do I understand who Jesus claimed to be? See, there are all kinds of people, and they want to get around this. Every, you got no problem if you're seeing Jesus is just all right with me. If he's just all right with you, you won't have a problem. That can be kind of cool. And 
if you want to twist things Jesus said or did and make them fit with our culture today, people will not have a problem with that. You say Jesus is a great teacher, we're okay. You say Jesus is a good man, a wise sage, Jesus is a prophet, we have no problem with that. Did you know that even Islam says Jesus is a prophet? Says he's the greatest of the prophets except for Muhammad. But see, here's the problem. That is not what Jesus claimed to be. That's not what the issue's about. That's, that's why Jesus does the sign on the Sabbath, because he wants to remove those things. He wants the argument because he wants them to get down to who he is. He removes every chance. You cannot say he's a good man. You cannot say he's a good teacher. He's God over all, or he's a nut job. That's what you're left with. Up here on the screen is a long quote. This is C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard this before, but grasp what what C.S. Lewis is saying. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, see, that's what Lewis is bringing out for us to see. And he's absolutely correct. John is giving these signs, and Jesus in this sign, the reason for the plot twist, and the reason to, see, John could have told us right from the beginning it was the Sabbath day, but he doesn't because he wants to get us to shake our head in the middle of the story because he's saying it's not about healing the lame man. That's nothing for Jesus. He can heal anything. You're going to see all kinds of powerful things he does. But here's the issue. Who is the one doing this? And if you miss that, you've missed everything. It doesn't matter if you believe he healed the royal son. It doesn't matter if you believe he turned water into wine. It doesn't matter if you believe he healed the paralytic or multiplied the loaves or healed the blind man. It doesn't matter any of that if you don't know who he is. And who he is is the supreme God. Come to us in human flesh. Now, Lewis's words the Jewish leaders would have agreed with. Just except for what they would have said is, yes, and we believe he's a devil of hell. And that's why he has to be put to death. Because we understand what he's saying. He's blaspheming. He's calling himself equal with God. Cannot be. They were not fools. They understood what he was saying. Simple question. Do I? Or do I engage in patronizing nonsense to believe he's something else? And friends, we, we cha- are challenged by this. You know why we like to do this? Because Jesus, the great moral teacher, is comfortable. Jesus, sovereign Lord, 
is very uncomfortable. Great moral teachers, I can say, those are interesting words. I'm going to think about that over dinner tonight. Sovereign Lord, now we're in a different issue. Because he says, no, not interesting words. Your entire existence depends upon them. Who do you say I am? That's the central question. And that's what Jesus gives to us. Do I understand there is no other option? Jesus did not intend for there to be. Now that leads to the second thing, which is that we are called to worship the Lord of the Sabbath in faith. See, all of these are to provoke a response of faith and worship. Remember John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. When you come to the end of John's gospel and you get there and he's done all of these signs and Jesus has been raised from the dead and John comes back and says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. I picked these seven out and here's why I did it. That, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing you may have faith in his name. It's not just that you believe the signs. There are other people who have done seemingly miraculous things. John says that's not the point. The point is, do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe that by him you have life? Friends, we're given these reliable historical records so that we can exercise faith in Jesus as the son of God. And we're given them so that there is no other question that's left out there. Well, you know, maybe he didn't really say that. Maybe that was misunderstood. No, he did say it. It was not misunderstood. The only question is, do I believe? If you have not believed, I urge you, look to him in faith today. We sang a song today that was basically the Apostles' Creed put to music. I believe in Christ. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. Do you believe? In the early church, when you came a, became a Christian and you stood at the waters of baptism, that's what they asked. Do you believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth? And your response in Greek was one word, pistueo. I believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? Pistueo, I believe. Do you believe he was conceived of the Holy Spirit? Pistueo, I believe. Do you believe? Do I believe? If you don't, I urge you, look to him. If you do, the message here, and we're going to see this ringing more and more true, as time goes on through these signs, to side with Jesus is to have others turn against you. There is no spiritual Switzerland. There's no neutral ground. You're on one side or the other. And to declare allegiance to Jesus, to stand up and say, I believe, is to earn the ire. It is to be spurned by the culture at large, but it's to be received and welcomed and blessed by the eternal Son of God. So if you have, don't let the doubt of others dissuade you. As we get close to Easter, we are going to see, I saw one the other day, I was in the gym working out, and I saw somebody in front of me had a TV, and I couldn't hear it. I was glad I couldn't. It was one of these, some other silly show, obviously, about trying to piece together what happened in the Gospels. 
and trying to come up with some way to explain how Jesus' body wasn't there, you know, and maybe it was, I don't know, you know, taken by some alien or something, and he's going to come back in E.T. or some kind of stupid stuff. And you hear this stuff every year to try and explain a way around it. There is no explaining a way around it. He came. He gave signs. We believe or we don't. Don't listen to the foolish doubts and, and people pushing against it. If you believe, stand firm. And the only response in that faith is worship. Because if you know who he is, you don't wander off like the lame man here and say, you know, I didn't get his name. I missed that. I, I was lame for 38 years, but you know, I had other things to do. No. If I know who he is, then I say he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer. He is the sovereign Lord over all. He is the one who is going to come again, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And therefore, I worship him. What we're going to do is we're going to stand together, and I'm going to conclude with a prayer. And I want to encourage and urge you, respond to this not as the Pharisees, and not even as the man there. I, I'm sad to say, this guy nowhere in the story gives evidence of faith. He just doesn't. He stands in stark contrast to the royal official in John 5 who said, I believe. You, you said the word, I'm gone. I'm out of here. I believe and I trust my whole family. Stark contrast to the person in John chapter 9 that says, this I know, I was blind, but now I see. I want to urge you today, look and cry out in faith. Lord Jesus, you are the God of glory and might. By your powerful word, you created everything we see and even the things we cannot see. By your powerful word, you have sustained the entire universe through its eons of existence, and by it you sustain our very lives this day. By your powerful word, you healed the lame man. And by that same powerful word, you raised us from spiritual death so that we might walk with you. And one day you will utter your powerful word and the dead will rise, coming out of their graves to stand before you. And in light of that, today we humbly bow our knees and we declare that you are Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Today we also gratefully acknowledge that though you are the eternal Son of God, you humbled yourself, taking your very nature, our very nature to yourself. And as a human, you humbled yourself even further and became obedient to death, even the humiliating death of the cross. But Lord, you did this for us and for our salvation, and we are grateful now and forever and with our tongue we declare that you are now highly exalted seated at the father's right hand bringing everything in subjection to the will of our god and father as your people we look forward to the day of your return when every eye will see when every knee will bow and when every tongue will confess the truth you are lord of all worthy of all worship and praise. O Lord of the Sabbath,
We thank you that for the rest you've already given to us as your people, and we look forward to the eternal Sabbath rest you will bring us at your return. So with your spirit and your bride, we say, come, bring everyone who is thirsty to drink the free gift of the waters of life. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And God's people say, amen. Amen. Friends, I encourage you to receive the blessing of our God and go forth in his peace. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, be with you in truth and love. Go forth full of his spirit and blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.